a pleasant good morning and welcome to another edition of Chatterbox Radio. I'm your host, Michael Derek Roberts. This morning, this part of, of our normal podcast we call Real Politics, and we're going to look at Debong, speak about and explain in layman terms a number of issues and happenings that have been permeating the political, social, and economic space in New York City and the broader United States and beyond. I speak, of course, of the debt ceiling. And to ordinary Americans listening to the debt ceiling or hearing issues of the debt ceiling, how there's a looming war between Republicans and Democrats and the president, Uh, about the debt ceiling and what to do about it, there is a fundamental issue of a lack of understanding of what this is all about. So here at Chatterbox Radio, in this segment called Real Politics, we're going to start to debunk that. We're going to explain it in terms that you, the listener to this podcast over there, can understand. So let's jump right into it. So exactly what is a debt ceiling? Well, the U.S. debt ceiling is a legal limit on the amount of money that the U.S. government is allowed to borrow, firstly, to finance its operations and programs. And that's kind of what it is. It's simple. The U.S. borrows money. It, it, it issues uh, bonds, uh, international bonds, international IOUs, and other financial in- instruments to raise money to fund its operation and program. Now, from, the, from Jump Street, let's explain what that really means before we go on to discuss the U.S. debt ceiling. First and foremost, the U.S. has, or any government for that matter in the world, has two ways of paying for operations, road building, bridge maintenance, social security, um, entitlement programs, uh, uh, defense, what have you. There are two ways to pay for that. The first is by taxpayer money meaning you, me, and all of you listeners outside there who pay taxes from your salary uh, and from other investments that you have contribute collectively to the sum total of the amount of money that the U.S. raises in revenue. That is called revenue-generating activities. Those revenue-generating activities is what goes to fund a number of things. And the revenue-generating activities internally in the United States may range from, for example, the lottery. The the, the lottery in places like New York City goes to fund education, um, fees, and and other local uh, levies on things like driver's license, um, fees for uh, uh, penalties, financial and monetary penalties for parking in wrong spots or parking on the wrong side of the road or fees for not um, abiding by Lucas' laws and how you handle sanitation, for example. All these fees, um, fines, 
and, and taxes are all tabulated and come together in a, in, a, in a big coffer called the Treasury Departments, both local and national, that are then you that, that those monies are then used by governments. Governments also raise money in a, in a different in different ways. For example, in investments in things like um, international bond markets, stock markets, etc., etc. Uh, they raise money um, from public-private partnerships um, in large corporations to do certain to carry out certain issues and to and to 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 get financing for special services and projects that take place in the city, state, and nation. The other way to raise money is simply to print money. And the U.S. as the, the U.S. dollar as the unit and currency of international trade and negotiation, financial negotiation, tends to do that sometimes. Run the printing press and so forth. Because at the end of the day, the U.S. dollar is only worth what the government is called the full faith and and um, the full faith and promise of the U.S. government. I, I don't know if I'm getting that co um, collectively right right now, but in a in a nutshell, the U.S.'s reputation as an international um, currency of repute and for trade and for negotiations and other things in the world is backed by its it, 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 the paper that it prints. The US came off and was being offered the gold the gold standard as far back as the Nixon era. And so in those days a dollar was worth how much of how much um, how much ever ounces of gold in terms of to one unit of exchange dollar that the uh, a dollar as a unit of exchange had when the US government weaned stopped uh, the gold standard to back its currency it the currency degenerated into what is called fiat currency meaning it's worthless it's only its own its only value is what the US Treasury and the US government gives that 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 piece of paper. So the paper is produced in Euro, in units of one dollar, ten dollars, five dollars, twenty dollars, fifty dollars, hundred dollars. These are all units of exchange in fiat money and are and 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 are printed and given those kinds of values. So that's one way to do it. It's not the best way to run the economy, but it, that's one of the ways to do it. Because you run the risk of high inflation when you have a lot of worthless currency um, floating around in the economy, the price of goods and services go up as it is. So those are the two, two ways. Now, the debt ceiling um, is a, a statutory limit on the total amount of outstanding federal debt that the U.S. government can have, have at any given time. That probably is linked to one financial year, etc., maybe from Jan um, January to October as a financial year or January to December. I don't quite know if that is the, 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 the period they're talking about, but it is a set time, set in months that 
That is the debt that the U.S. government can accrue over this period. Now, once the U.S. government accrues that debt by credit, it buys X amount, it, it, it invests in whatever the government uses money to pay for, those are debts that has, have already been accrued. Now, what happens is at the end of this set period, the U.S. government then has to pay its debt. That's the, the, the logic behind this. They have, it has to pay debt. So, the debt ceiling is set by Congress, and it is periodically adjusted to account for inflation. Just now I told you about inflation and changes in government spending. When the debt ceiling is reached, the U.S. Treasury is not allowed to issue any more debt, which means the government is unable to borrow more money to pay for its programs and obligations. That is by congressional regulation and U.S. law. If the debt ceiling is not raised, the government risks defaulting on its debt, which could have severe consequences for the U.S. economy and the financial markets of the world. To avoid a, 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 a default, Congress must raise the debt ceiling by passing legislation to increase the debt. Remember, Congress is the one that controls the U.S. purse strings so that any spending by the U.S. government, by the federal government, has to be a law passed and signed into law by the president, by the U.S. Congress. That is simple to understand at this point in time. You're listening to Shatterbox Radio. I'm your host, Michael Derek Roberts. And this morning, we kicked off our, our political discussion of things that are important and germane to, the, to you, the ordinary listener over the outside there, listening to this podcast. Um, we're talking this morning about the debt ceiling in this first segment. All right, so let's move on a bit. The debt ceiling has always been a contentious issue in recent years. It has become politicized, with some lawmakers using it as a bargaining chip in negotiations over government spending and other policy issues. So every time the debt ceiling comes around, there is a, a, a protracted fight between the both parties in the U.S. Congress, the Republicans and Democrats. Republicans argue that, they need to be, that we need to be fiscal conservative and that there should be no more spending, no more government spending on, on anything and we need to bring down the debt ceiling. Now, on the surface, that sounds really very good. It's a great thing. Um, reduce the debt because at the end of the day, the debt burden is paid by all Americans. It's not paid by any other other outside entity, all of us, all of you out there has have to contribute in some form or fashion, whether through taxes, whether through levy, whether through fees, whatever the mechanism is to pay down the debt ceiling. It's your money that is used to pay down the debt ceiling. So Republicans argue that they are fiscal conservatives, we don't want to um, spend more than we take in, which is what happens all the time. We spend more money than we raise revenue in the United States. 
And there are a number of, a myriad number of reasons why that is so. Um, bloated spending on things, for example, our defense spending is more than all of the world combined. The, the, the largest armies and, and, and forces and economies in the world combined come, don't even come near to the almost $900 billion that the United States spends every year on arms and on, 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 on its military. Um, so there are a number of reasons why the debt ceiling and, and U.S. spending is run away, it has run away over the years, and Republicans continue to argue that, quite rightly so, don't get me wrong, quite rightly so, that you need to reduce the debt ceiling in order to get spending in other ways. Now, the Democrats, on the other hand, argue that sometimes it is necessary to spend on things like welfare programs, entitlement programs. I mean, Social Security, Medicaid and Medicare, and other entitlement programs that they feel are of great benefit to the poorest in American society. That, of course, is a noble thing. So that ideological disagreement between Americans, um, I'm sorry, between Republican and Democrats, always plays into the issue whenever the debt ceiling comes around and so forth. But at the end of the day, the debt ceiling has to do with debts that the American federal government has already incurred. Those are debts that it needs to pay. If it doesn't, its, its credit rating in, as the world's leading economy and, and, and the dollar being the, 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 the financial unit of exchange and trade globally will suffer. And that is not a good thing for a country. So those negotiations between Republicans and, and Democrats in the U.S. Congress are always contentious. The U.S. Um, uh, uh, is right up right now against the question of the debt ceiling because technically it, the debt ceiling will expire if, it's not, if, if, the, if the Democrats and Republicans do not come together to extend it to increase it or whatever they need to do to satisfy the terms of that debt in June. This June coming is the drop-dead month for that. And we have to bear that in mind and so forth. Um, they, technically, what that means is that the U.S. government cannot borrow more than the $31.4 trillion previously approved by the U.S. Congress. That's what we're facing. The U.S. has to pay that debt, 31.4 million trillion U.S. dollars. But in practice, what it means is that the U.S. Treasury will start playing a shell game called extraordinary measures. And um, let me explain what that means. Um, that game will continue until the Congress votes to meet the debt ceiling to, to reset the debt ceiling to another level. It is like kicking the can down the road. The Treasury, the Treasury Department, in my view, is really good at this game. In fact, the last time it played its shell game was in 2021. The Treasury Department also notably played the game in, 2020, in 2011, 2013, 2015, 2017, and 2019. 
In recent years, it seemed like the Treasury has played that game more often than not. But like most things in Washington, D.C., the latest debt ceiling debate isn't really about the debt. It's about who gets to choose how much the government will spend. Spending is the one thing that politicians and bureaucrats have complete control over and is the one thing they care about and do not agree about the most. So you see how complicated this thing becomes when you're talking about ceiling and paying debt that you normally have. In a sane world, they would never spend more than the, than the collecting tax revenues. That's a sane world. But we really don't live in a sane world. We know that. Especially after the issue, after the Trump years. You know, they never want to spend less than they can, so they borrow the rest to make the difference, to make up the difference. That can work for a while, but thanks to President Biden, Biden's inflation, the government has to spend more while the cost of borrowing has gone up. So, of course, what President Biden really wants to do is, continue, is to continue that rate of spending, which is, in my view, no longer fiscally sustainable. Paying interest on the government's borrowed money has become the fastest growing part of the federal, of federal government spending. Let me explain what that means. What it means is, these debt that the U.S. has owed to a number of different international lenders and, uh, 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 and, and so forth, accrue interest on it. They're not just lending the U.S. money to pay its debt um, out of the, the, the goodness of their heart. They're looking to make money. So what the U.S. does every time is to raise that ceiling and say, we're going to pay you give you another IOU, and then they start paying down the debt, the, the, the interest on the debt. What that means is the interest on this federal debt has been the, 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 the part, the largest, now the largest part of, fed, of federal deficit spending. And we call, that's what is called deficit spending because you have what is called a budget deficit. No matter how the, 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 the economists and, and the politicians and, other, and others cloak this issue. It's all about deficit spending. It's all about spending more money than you're taking in, in revenue, having to make up the shortfall, as I said, in two ways, either, either to raise taxes, which are, uh, incidentally, Republicans many times are, 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 are loath to do, and Democrats want to do sparingly because the money has to come from somewhere. It's like, and we've come, we've come to this issue because of a number of reckless issues and reckless fiscal policies by both parties in Congress. It's not a Democratic thing. It's not only a Republican thing. It is a both-party thing. For example, when Donald Trump got, and I'm not singling Trump, out for any, um, any, any, any sustained attack. I am using the Trump administration as the last administration before the Biden administration as, as an example. During the Trump administration, one of the first things they did is to give a tax cut in billions of dollars to the wealthiest in America. Wealthy corporation, the oil industry, um, who didn't want it, 
uh, and other millionaires and billionaires got a tremendous cut, a tax cut in the trillions of dollars. Now, that on the surface, the argument and the old Reaganomics uh, uh, um, proponents have argued that when you give tax cuts to the wealthiest people and the wealthiest corporation, they are going to turn around and spend it uh, uh, on different programs and services and issues within the community. And that is what is called a trickle-down trickle economy. So that, that the money that you give them in tax cut trickles down. That is what they are saying. However, in, in practice and in reality, that never happens. But what they are not telling you, the ordinary Americans, is that in the at the core of all of this, is the fact that somebody must pay for those tax cuts. Who pays for the tax cuts? Well, the American taxpayers. Because when you cut taxes and you give that as a tax break to the wealthy, it means that you have let less revenue to put on road maintenance, uh, 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 electricity output, etc., etc. You have less money because you've cut taxes for them. You've given them a break. But many times they use those tax cuts just to get ahead, to cement themselves more, to strengthen, to strengthen their financial intake. Hence the reason today we have such gross and seismic inequality when it comes to income and share of the national income in particular. So... All of these things are interrelated, intertwined, and, and this confluence of all these issues becomes a serious problem for governance in the United States. Look at what is happening in the area of food. Food prices are through the air. They're through the air, they're through the roof, whatever you, however you want to call them. They, so it means that since wages are not going up as quickly as food, rice, food prices go up. It means that the dollar that you spent last week on buying eggs, and I'm using that as an example, cannot buy eggs this week because the price of eggs have gone up, which means that your salary, your income is worth less in the scheme of things. So I'm, I'm trying to give you a ripple effect in terms of what that means. You're listening to Shadowbox Radio and we are in the zone of talking, of speaking truth to power in this segment called Real Politics. I'm your host, Michael Roberts, and I have to tell you that this program, this podcast, weekly podcast, is sponsored by Common Sense Strategies Group. Brooklyn's premier digital and AI marketing agency that specializes in working with small business, including small restaurants, accounting and tax preparers office, dentist pra dental practice, accounting, uh, um, accountants, I think I said that already, um, and attorneys, special attorneys office that specialize in different things like immigration and so forth. You can reach us at www.comstratdm.com or you can call us at 
347-279-6668 or send us an email at prstrategies at protonmail.com that's prstrategies at protonmail.com now as we move into the last segment of, 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 this, of today's program I want to turn to some issues facing the people of the Caribbean region and not necessarily in the U.S. Last week um, in Port of Spain, Trinidad, there was a meeting of CARICOM, which is, a short, which is shortened for the Caribbean community um, leaders, all of the prime ministers in the region from Jamaica in the north to Trinidad in the south and including Guyana and Belize in South America, um, met to discuss security. Because as if you have been following the news, the Caribbean is now a hotbed of crime with the rate of crime in places like Jamaica, Trinidad, Barbados is akin to that of Iraq in a war zone. In relative terms, not in numerical terms, but in, rel in relative terms. So this, this meeting of heads of government was designed to look at regional security and to find solution to a situation that is, in my view, going to get worse. And the reason why I say that is simply because the Caribbean is still reeling from the after effects and aftershocks of COVID-19 that destroyed, literally decimated the key tourism service industry that most Caribbean countries rely on from, for real estate and for seasonal, for, for work, for employment. Now, that's the, the, that's the backstory to the situation in crime. Apart from that, these vulnerable islands surrounded by water are, are open to every sort of drug trafficking, um, firearms trafficking, and so forth. The thing about it is that most of the firearms and so forth now used to commit crimes across the region are not manufactured in the region. In fact, the Caribbean region has one of the lowest manufacturing industries in the entire world. They are, most of them are driven by tourism uh, and depend on tourists from abroad to come to, to, to help build their, um, their, their economies. So most of the weapons come from the United States and through what I call the, 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 the regional Latin American pipeline come down and are filtered through places like Venezuela, which is close proximity to Trinidad. That is one of the reasons why Trinidad is so awash with guns and crimes today. And from Trinidad, it is a matter of easy inter-island interrelation um, movement free movement between CARICOM, we have that in the Treaty of Chagaramas, to, for these guns to find their way from Trinidad or going on the way up to St. Kitts and Nevis and from Jamaica on the way down. The Jamaican pipeline happens to come through Haiti, which gets its guns from Latin America. So this is well known to the United States and other international people. So this meeting was designed to seek ways and means to that. And why they did come up at the end of the three-day meeting 
with other sustainable things and, and other carefully thought out things. I thought I'd, I'd, I, I would speak briefly on an issue that, that came up in the meeting and I think is a retrograde and backward step. The Prime Minister of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Dr. Rav Gonzalez, who is an attorney, a practicing attorney for many years, floated the notion that the Caribbean should revisit the question of capital punishment, meaning the Caribbean should start to hang people convicted of crimes of murder in the region. Now, that is the type of reasoning and backward thinking that only goes nowhere and in my view it is reprehensible that a caribbean prime minister with the kind of stature experience he's the oldest serving caribbean prime minister right now in the english-speaking caribbean to, to 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 literally by saying well okay let me hang people scorting the reasons and the, the deep problems, the complex problems of crime in the region. Crime in the region, in my view, is driven by poverty, first and foremost. The Caribbean today exists in some of the highest rates of poverty in the world. That is one. And as we know, in the United States, in the ghettos of the United States, and the at-risk community and the low-income communities in places like Brooklyn and the Bronx, where there's poverty, there's going to be crime. You cannot get away from it. People have to live. People have to eat. If they cannot do, get it by legal means, they are going to get it by illegal means. That normally is guns. Um, it normally, normally is violence. It normally is murder. So that's the first thing. And the Caribbean is not unique to that in terms of that sociological construct. The second thing in the Caribbean is that governments have failed abysmally to be forward-thinking and proactive in terms of how they handle their economy and, by extension, give hope and opportunity to young people. What we've seen in the last 25 years is a, a brain drain from the Caribbean. Those who could leave the Caribbean and come to places like the United States, Canada, and England to see if they could make ends meet. Now, the jury is out on this one right now because what has happened since COVID and other e economic downturns in places like the Am uh, America is that even people who for years have saved in 501, um, 401Ks, etc., and all these other financial instruments, Many, 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 at least about 36% of all of them have, they, 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 they have wiped out. They, they, the savings are wiped out and many of them have rejoined the job market in the United States. In Brooklyn, where I live, which has the highest percentage of seniors in the five boroughs, most of these seniors cannot subsist on the 401ks, the little that they have in it, and the pensions, and the, and the, and the, the social security. So what is happening? A number of seniors who bought their houses many years, 25, 30 years ago, have, are now losing their house to real estate speculation. Let me tell you how it works. 
It works this way. They bought the house 25 years ago. It was what it was what at that point when they bought it thirty thousand dollars. I'm just saying. Now that they retired, they almost paid for the house. They paid into the five hundred one k. The value of the five hundred one k thirty years ago is not the value it is now. One, two. These houses that was bought for twenty five thousand dollars ten years twenty years ago are now worth quarter million dollars. The problem for seniors and others who own this property is that they now have to pay market rate taxes on these on on these pieces of property, which they cannot afford to do. What happens is, since that is the case, a lot of them are losing their houses. Give them a couple of dollars, they take the money, they try to find to make it work, or they go to another state where they don't know anybody. And die. That's really what it is. So those are serious issues that we face here, far less in the Caribbean, where there are no other safety net. So my friend, I like, I, I like Ralph. I know him. I like the comrade. That is a wrong-headed move because corporal punish, uh, um, corporal, um, I'm sorry, capital punishment is never a deterrent to crime. Crime in the Caribbean is rooted in poverty. Drug trafficking in the Caribbean is rooted in poverty. When young people don't have anything to fall back on, and the the the, the level of consumerism in the United States by this, by that, by the other, and they see that and they yearn for that, they get into crime. They get into drugs. Wherever there's drug, there's guns. Whether they, wherever there's drug, drugs, there are guns. Guns are going to be used to commit crimes. So that is a problem in the region. So in short, what the Caribbean region has to do is to put in place, and there are signatories to the United Nations Poverty Redu Reduction Programs. The, what, what Prime Minister Gonzalez said, I would respectfully um, offer is that he should look at ways and means at poverty alleviation and reduction in the region before you start talking about hanging people for crimes uh, uh, crimes committed in the region. Now, let me say clearly, I am in no way subs uh, supporting or excusing criminal activity. I am in no way doing that. What I am saying is the regional Caribbean governments need to find the root causes of it before you look at it on the surface and say, well, this is easy for me to do. Let me just hang a couple of people and so forth. In the United States, right here in Brooklyn, you have the highest rates of, 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 highest rates of Suicide among young college age and high school age children. That is a shame. What it means, clearly and objectively, is that this whole generation has lost hope. It is easy to point fingers and say, listen, these are the solutions to these problems without thinking through why we got here and what we didn't got here. I 
previously worked for a new a Brooklyn City Council member. And one of the biggest problems that we face, that, they, that we had as problems coming through the door on a daily basis, is one, seniors losing their home. People who used to work in government, work all their years in government, they're retired now, have a problem in accessing quality affordable health care, their pensions that they had 20 years, 30 years ago is no longer value right now, and many other complex problems. So it is not right and easy to just point a finger and say, these are the solutions. The second issue that came up in that, um, in that conference was the issue of guns in the region, and that is crime-related guns in the region. Prime Minister of Jamaica, Andrew Holness, floated the idea that the U.S. must help the Caribbean, in his words, fight the war on guns in the very much the same way that the, that the Caribbean helped the U.S. fight the war on, on, on drugs. Now, Andrew Holness is supposed to be a very smart guy, but the war on drugs in the United States was disproportionately waged against black and brown peoples. From all, all reports, all conclusions, the war on drugs was an abysmal failure. What the war on drugs did, and starting from Nixon, the Nixon era, and ending up with the Bill Clinton era of three strikes and you're out, is to put black people in jail. Today, there are the, the, about 27 to 28 million black people in the United States today. But as compared to our population, our white population are 334 million people. But disproportionately, in, across all U.S. jails, the over 1.1 million people in U.S. jails, disproportionately, the number of people in jails as a, as a percentage of, of, of race and, 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 and population is black people. The war on drugs did that. Bill Clinton, three strikes on your out, was the one that put the final nail in the coffin tree of, of the war on drugs. So Andrew Cuomo, I'm sorry, with respect, uh, I'm sorry to Andrew Cuomo, Andrew Holness in Jamaica, is wrong to use that as the example and the reason, the rationale for the U.S. to help with drug trafficking in the region. Now, the Caribbean don't have a war on, grub, drug, on guns because the Caribbean does not manufacture guns. The Caribbean does not manufacture guns. Guns is an illegal firearms trade in the Caribbean, is a lucrative trade for the United States, where it is easier to it, it is easy to buy a gun than to qualify for unemployment benefits. Let me say that again. It is easier in the United States to buy a firearm, an AR-15 or an AK-47. It is easier to buy it than it is to qualify even for a driver's license or for unemployment. Don't talk about SNAP benefits. It is, it is 
a hundred times harder for a poor person who has qualified from, for SAP benefits to go through the paperwork process as than by a gun, a firearm, a Glock, or whatever have you. It has become so brazen in places like New York City where gun dealers now serve up guns and sell guns by parking up and opening the back of the, uh, the, 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 the trunk of the, uh, of, the, of the cars. It's no longer that you have to go and run all about the police and so forth. The, the criminals know the gun dealers. The, the, the gun dealers. They pack up, drive up, and so forth. The same is true of the Caribbean. The undercurrent of poverty and criminality knows where to find them. They knows where they come. There's a pipeline. The, the, the reason why they end up in Barbados, in Jamaica, in Grenada, and so forth is because we do not have the Coast Guard resources to, to police our borders. And it's land surrounded by water. Just take your pick in one little area and you come in there with a, with a boat, you unload your guns and you're gone again. There is no radar. There is no drone in the sky to point it out. There is nothing like that. So wholeness needs to... Apart from the, 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 the easy um, song bite that this gives, it's a, it's a problem. And that is not, it is a wrong-headed way, in my view, to, to, to go through this. Last but not least, one of my, my favorite prime ministers in the region, Bannon, is Mia Motley. I think she's a breath of fresh air. I think she's smart. I think she's measured. I think she has a really great head on her shoulders and she has demonstrated that kind of leadership in the Caribbean time and time again. However, she spoke about the question of music and I suspect she's talking about the kind of gangsterism and so forth. I, I agree with her in a lot of ways. I agree with her. Caribbean um, Culture is all but a mismatch of all kind of crazy nonsense right now. And we've seen a proliferation of really obscene and other kinds of lyrics across the region. It is not, Caribbean has been noted for its culture, its cultural offering. We no longer have that. And Mia was right to talk about that kind of music and that kind of lyrics that is fueling gangster behavior and criminality. She's right. However, that is not the only cause. Singling out one issue as the root cause for crime in the Caribbean is not measured, it's not objected, and it's not thought out. So that is the only reason I have when it comes to her. But other than that, I think that is great. You're listening to an extended version from our 30-minute um, weekly broadcast because I thought that this was very important to discuss. You're listening to Chatterbox Radio, and this segment is called Real Politics. And I'm your host, Michael Roberts, and I want to thank the people at Common Sense Strategies Group for sponsoring this weekly podcast. I'm going to close this week's uh, podcast looking at another thing that is going to, uh, another issue that is going to come, um, come up very soon in New York City. And that, of course, is the Democratic and Republican primary elections that is going to take place in June. Those of you who are eligible to vote, 
uh, those of you who, you are, uh, who are going to be doing absentee voting, just remember that early voting starts on June 12th. It goes for a week. And the Democratic primary is June 27th. So keep those dates in mind. All of the 51 city council members are on the ballot. They're up for re-election. The vast majority of them do not have challenges and will not have challenges. They are, they are the, the incumbency, the point of, of the incumbency is going to definitely be something. And um, in my view, there are many of them, um, save one, um, is going to coast to victory. That particular, um, I, I talk about Brooklyn's 41st district, which is going to be um, hotly contested. Um, that particular council member, council member Darlene Mealy, is not going to have a, 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 an easy walk as the others, uh, as, as her other colleagues have, but we'll see what happens, what the outcome of that would be. So before I go, let me just remind you, the Democratic primary in New York City is scheduled for this June 2023 because of redistricting. And the, the, the early voting begins on June 12th. I think that's a Monday. Don't hold me to it. I'm not looking at the calendar right now. But I think it's a Monday. The early voting um, starts June 12th and continues, I think, for the week or two weeks. Don't remember what it is. But, um, and the Democratic primary, the big day is June 27th. You were listening to Chatterbox Radio. Um, this it was an, an extended edition, an extended edition, um, as I can tell you. But I think that is necessary. And from time, from time to time, we are going to do that simply because um, the, the, the gravity of the situation, the importance of, of the situation, and the fact that on this podcast we speak truth to power, we explain things in a layman's, in layman's term so that anybody could understand. I urge you to share this podcast with your friends, your family who, who, who thirst for knowledge. Knowledge is power in this case. So until next week, I'm your host, Michael Derek Roberts. Thank you you for listening do have an incredible uh week and um we are going to be back here next week at 10 o at, at one o'clock thank you have a pleasant day